Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! The climate crisis, the curtailment of reproductive rights, authoritarianism, these threats aren't looming. They're here now. If you believe Democracy Now!'s reporting on these issues is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20. Go to democracynow.org to make your donation right away. Oh, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! On this vote, the yeas are 216, the nays are 210. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Kevin McCarthy has become the first House Speaker in U.S. history to be ousted after eight hardline Republicans led an effort to remove him from his post, leaving Congress in a state of chaos. We'll speak to Democratic Congressmember Rokana about what comes next and the state of the Senate race in California as LaFonza Butler sworn in to temporarily fill the seat of the late Dianne Feinstein, who will be buried on Thursday. Then we go to Haiti as the U.N. Security Council votes to deploy a U.S.-backed Kenyan-led multinational armed force in what will be the first deployment of international forces to Haiti in nearly 20 years. This mission comes at the request of the Haitian government and Haitian civil society to address the insecurity and dire humanitarian crisis the country has faced for far too long. But many Haitians are warning against another foreign intervention in Haiti, while questioning why the Biden administration continues to support Haiti's unelected prime minister, Ariel Henry, who's ruled since the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse two years ago. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. For the first time ever, the U.S. House voted to remove its speaker, California Republican Congressmember Kevin McCarthy, plunging the House into even greater turmoil. The far-right flank of the Republican Party and all Democrats voted Tuesday to oust McCarthy in a 216 to 210 vote. It came just days after McCarthy worked with Democrats to pass a stopgap bill to avert a government shutdown. McCarthy spoke after his ouster. I don't regret standing up for choosing governing over grievance. It is my responsibility. It is my job. I do not regret negotiating. Our government is designed to find compromise. McCarthy's accused Florida's far-right Congress member Matt Gates, who set the vote in motion of a personally motivated attack. 
The House Ethics Committee has been investigating Gates for a range of possible crimes, including sex trafficking and misuse of campaign funds. The House will now have to vote for a new leader with no clear successor in sight, as Congress has just over six weeks to again avoid a shutdown. We'll go to D.C. for the latest with California Congressmember Ro Khanna after headlines. Here in New York, the judge overseeing Donald Trump's civil fraud trial imposed a gag order on the former president Tuesday after Trump posted a photo of the judge's law clerk with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer falsely claiming she's Schumer's girlfriend. Trump also wrote the case against him should be dismissed. Judge Arthur and Gorin barred Trump from posting, sending emails or making public remarks about members of the judge's staff. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Fulton County prosecutors have reportedly reached plea deals with at least half the fake electors for their cooperation in the wide-ranging racketeering case around Trump's efforts to overturn the result of the 2020 election. Hunter Biden pleaded not guilty to lying about his drug use on a 2018 form he filled out to buy a firearm. President Biden's son faces a potential federal trial during the 2024 presidential campaigning period after a plea deal fell apart over the summer. In Colombia, the government has issued a long-awaited public apology for the extrajudicial killings of 19 civilians who were mislabeled as rebel fighters in what became known as the false positive scandal. The killings took place between 2004 and 2008, as the Colombian military intensified its crackdown against the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. Colombian soldiers and officers were paid bonuses and granted promotions based on their kill count. Thousands of civilians were killed and purposefully mislabeled. But some family members rejected the apology, including this mother of a victim. Let it be very clear that today my family and I are not granting forgiveness. For us, it is very painful because we are still in a moment of total impunity. I have been waiting for more than 16 years for justice to be served, for the truth to be found, and for there to be no more repetition of these cases. On Tuesday, police in New Delhi, India, raided the homes and offices of dozens of journalists working for a left-leaning independent news outlet critical of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government. NewsClick's founder and editor-in-chief, Prabir Purkayasta, and another journalist were arrested. The mass raid and interrogations came as part of an investigation involving a sweeping anti-terror law critics say has been used to attack press freedom. Earlier this year, Indian authorities also raided the offices of the BBC in a separate investigation. A group of protesters gathered in front of the New York Times building yesterday as they accused the Times of complicity in the crackdown after the newspaper previously accused NewsClick and other outlets of being part of a Chinese news propaganda network. Pakistani authorities have ordered all undocumented immigrants to leave the country by November 1st or face mass deportations. This includes over 1.7 million asylum seekers from Afghanistan who have fled to neighboring Pakistan since the Taliban returned to power in 2021. 
Pakistan's interior minister, Sarfaraz Bogti, said Tuesday after the November deadline, Afghans will only be allowed to enter if they have a valid passport or visa, a process that can take months due to a massive backlog. Maryland Senator Ben Cardin, the new chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has blocked all $235 million in U.S. military funding to Egypt, citing human rights concerns. Cardin replaced New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez as head of the powerful committee after Menendez was indicted on federal bribery charges, including accusations he used his position to help New Jersey businessmen and the Egyptian government. After Israel, Egypt is the second largest recipient of U.S. foreign military aid, despite the well-known abuses of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi's government, including its harsh crackdown on dissent in the press. Cardin said the funding would be blocked until his committee saw reforms on pretrial detention and the release of political prisoners. El-Sisi is widely expected to win Egypt's upcoming December election. In Niger, the government has declared three days of national mourning after an attack by suspected militants killed at least 29 soldiers in Niger's western border with Mali. Niger's defense ministry also said several dozen terrorists were killed. Local residents lamented the attack and the ongoing insecurity. We wish that this morning, this sadness, that the families of the soldiers feel, that the Nigerians feel, that this would be the last time and that this insecurity stops. We want peace to return to Niger, peace to return to the Sahel, peace to return to Mali, peace to return to Burkina. Violence in the Sahel has plagued Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso for over a decade, leading to military takeovers in the three countries, which recently formed a defense alliance to fight armed groups and external military intervention. The countries have moved to sever ties with the former colonizer France, whose mission to combat terrorism has largely failed or worsened the situation. The UN also recently withdrew its forces from Mali, as Mali's military attempts to repel conflicts from armed groups on multiple fronts. A blockade and bombing of Timbuktu by al-Qaeda-affiliated insurgents has led to fears of a possible civil war. This is a Timbuktu resident. What worries us is the shelling of the town. This creates a real psychosis and leaves its mark on people's minds. I, myself, have this fear inside of me. What's much more serious is that the fact that it affects people's psychology. In Nigeria, Reuters reports at least 37 people are dead after a homemade refinery ignited a nearby oil reservoir and exploded into flames. Illegal oil refining is common along the Niger Delta region of Nigeria, where local residents living in extreme poverty tap pipelines to make and sell fuel. Four environmental groups are suing Total Energies in French criminal court, accusing it of involuntary homicide over its oil projects, including the contested ECOP pipeline in Tanzania and Uganda. Activists have been heavily campaigning to bring international attention to the East African crude oil pipeline, which threatens the fragile surrounding ecosystem and communities in the pipeline's path. This comes as South Africa has given the green light for Total Energies to drill off its shores for gas and oil despite challenges from climate groups. One of the groups, Climate Justice Charter Movement, said they'll continue to fight the government's decision. 
Here in the United States, climate activists disrupted a talk packed with executives at the Insurance Leadership Forum in Colorado Springs Tuesday to demand companies stop insuring and investing in fossil fuel expansion. Hello, insurance executives. We are here today to call out the contributions that you're making, specifically Liberty Mutual. <laughs> I have opening line set up here. Earlier this week, protesters with RAN, Rainforest Action Network, and 350 Colorado gathered in front of another event at the Insurance Forum, demanding companies like Chubb, Travelers, and Liberty Mutual insure communities instead of fossil fuels. A growing number of homeowners are not able to afford insurance as the cost of coverage goes up and major companies have started pulling out of states that are at high risk of wildfires, flooding, and storms. A recent report found 39 million homes are risk of losing their insurance due to the climate crisis. In Maryland, five people were shot at Morgan State University in Baltimore Tuesday night. Police have not yet located a suspect in the shooting, which happened during a homecoming week event at the historically black school. The victims are not in critical condition. In other news from Baltimore, a federal judge has blocked lawsuits against Catholic schools, charities and parishes that are part of insurance plans with the Archdiocese of Baltimore. This comes days after the Catholic Church in Baltimore filed for bankruptcy Friday ahead of Maryland's new Child Victims Act, which went into effect Sunday and removes the statute of limitations for child sex abuse lawsuits. A flood of lawsuits is expected against the Archdiocese. A report last year found at least six 600 children suffered sexual abuse and physical torture by over 150 Baltimore clergy members over decades. Dozens of survivors also filed a suit Sunday against the state of Maryland and its agencies for sexual abuse suffered in its juvenile prisons. And 75,000 healthcare workers with Kaiser Permanente are walking off the job in a major strike that will run through Friday. Talks have failed to yield a new agreement as workers seek higher pay, better staffing and improvements in their pension plans and other benefits. The strike would affect Kaiser workers in California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Virginia and Washington, D.C. It's the largest strike of healthcare workers in U.S. history. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, Congress is in a state of chaos after Kevin McCarthy becomes the first House Speaker in U.S. history to be ousted. We'll speak with Democratic Congressmember Ro Khanna. Back in a minute.
Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Kevin McCarthy has become the first House Speaker in U.S. history to be ousted after eight hardline Republicans led an effort to remove him from his post, leaving Congress in a state of chaos. The entire Democratic caucus voted to remove McCarthy. On this vote, the yeas are 216, the nays are 210. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. The vote came just days after Kevin McCarthy worked with Democrats to pass a stopgap bill to avert a government shutdown for now. McCarthy spoke after his ouster. Doing the right thing isn't always easy but it is necessary. I don't regret standing up for choosing governing over grievance. It is my responsibility. It is my job. I do not regret negotiating. Our government is designed to find compromise. I don't regret my efforts to build coalitions and find solutions. I was raised to solve problems, not create them. So I may have lost a vote today, but as I walk out of this chamber, I feel fortunate to have served the American people. Kevin McCarthy has accused Florida's far-right Congress member Matt Gates, who set the vote in motion of a personally motivated attack. The House Ethics Committee has been investigating Gates for a range of possible crimes, including sex trafficking and misuse of campaign funds. Prior to the vote, Gates spoke out against McCarthy's leadership. Mr. Speaker, my friend from Oklahoma says that my colleagues and I who don't support Kevin McCarthy would plunge the House and the country into chaos. Chaos is Speaker McCarthy. Chaos is somebody who we cannot trust with their word. The one thing that the White House, House Democrats, and many of us on the conservative side of the Republican caucus would argue is that the thing we have in common Kevin McCarthy said something to all of us at one point or another that he didn't really mean and never intended to live up to. The House will now have to vote for a new leader with no clear successor in sight, as Congress has just over six weeks to again avoid a shutdown. North Carolina Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry will serve as acting speaker until a new one is elected. McCarthy says he will not run again. The House will be in recess until next week. We go now to Washington, D.C., where we're joined by California Congressmember Ro Khanna. He joined every other Democrat in the House Tuesday to vote to remove Kevin McCarthy as speaker. This is historic, Congressmember Ro Khanna, the first time in U.S. history a House speaker has been removed. Can you talk about the decision of the Democrats to join with the eight far-right Republicans in removing Kevin McCarthy? Hi, Amy, Kevin McCarthy's tragic fall reminds me of the scripture, Pride cometh before the fall. Kevin McCarthy 
few days before the motion tweets out, bring it on. He never outreached to the Democrats. He never tried to stand up to the far right faction since the day he took office. He could have had a very different speakership. He could have stood up to the far right. He could have not held the country hostage in the debt ceiling negotiations. He could have condemned what happened at January 6th and not walked that back. But instead, he basically kowtowed to this extreme wing on their side. And he only realized the danger of that a few days ago. And even then, he still was attacking Democrats on the Sunday shows. So it's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate situation for the House. But the Democrats really did not have someone who we could co-govern with. And, and Congressman, there was talk in the past few days of some kind of a, a possible a, a deal between the Democrats and McCarthy to keep him in office uh, if concessions could have been uh, uh, gotten from him in terms of future governing. Uh, w did any of those discussions ever really go anywhere? And uh, and was the and were the Democrats completely united and stick and sticking with the vote against him? I have never seen uh, on our Democratic caucus more united. Yesterday morning in the caucus meeting, about 50 members spoke. They all spoke about in unison about the need to support the motion to vacate. But at the same time, we had given our leader, Hakeem Jeffries, the authority to explore uh, any negotiation. Kevin McCarthy himself is saying that he didn't want to do that. He was not willing to talk about ending the bogus impeachment inquiry. He was not willing to talk about a path so that we don't continually put this government on the threat of shutdown. And so he wasn't ever serious about uh, that possibility. And I'm proud of my colleagues for standing united, both in the vote uh, and in our internal uh, conversations. So what happens now? In t uh, the, the Congress is recessed for a, a week. Uh, what will how long do you figure this will take to be able to to uh, uh, for the Republicans to arrive at a new leader? And what's this, the impact going to be on any legislation coming out of Congress? Well, Congress is at a halt, at a standstill. Uh, the irony is for Representative Gates saying that we don't work enough and we aren't coming in enough. Now they have basically adjourned Congress until next week. And we have important bills to take up in the next 45 days so that we don't have a situation of a shutdown right before Thanksgiving. My sense is that the Republicans are still trying to figure out uh, their leadership issue. And I do think they'll probably call less around someone uh, early next week. But the question is not so much who it is, whether it is uh, Representative Scalise or whether it is Comer or whether it is Jordan. The issue is, are they going to be able to govern? Will the Republicans allow them to pass another continuing resolution before Thanksgiving if we can't get a total budget deal? Or are we going to be in the same situation where a speaker is threatened to have them removed unless uh, they shut down government? And that's really it's a structural problem for that caucus. In a press conference on Tuesday evening, um, the ousted House Speaker Kevin McCarthy blamed the Democrats for his removal. I think today was a political decision by the Democrats. And I think, I think the things they have done in the past hurt the institution. They just started removing people from committee. 
They just started doing the other things. And I, my fear is the institution fell today. Because you can't do the job if eight people, you have 94% of, or 96% of your entire conference, but eight people can partner with the whole other side. How do you govern? So even though it was the eight far-right Republicans, he's talking about the Democrats. And also a side issue is uh, Nancy Pelosi was told to get her stuff out of, and you could explain what the secret offices near the chamber, as she is in California right now preparing for her close friend Dianne Feinstein's funeral on Thursday. The pettiness of what they're doing with Speaker Pelosi should offend every American. It is customary for former Speaker of the House, uh, for the former Speaker of the House to have an office in the Capitol. Kevin McCarthy would be entitled to have an office in the Capitol. And the fact that the first act of the Speaker pro tem is to kick Speaker Pelosi out of the Capitol is not just vindictive, but it also shows that they aren't focused on average Americans Priorities. I mean, what most Americans are worried about is that the gas bill is too much, the groceries cost too much, the rent costs too much, their income isn't keeping up, they can't afford to buy a house, interest rates are high, and there is no effort to actually address the economic issues, the kitchen table issues that affect the American public. Let me ask you something about the possible uh, House speakers uh, to be. There's the mention of Steve Scalise, um, who is going through, I think, chemo for blood cancer. Um, Jim Jordan, a head of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, who was involved in that scandal at Ohio State, uh, where he was an assistant uh, coach and the doctor abused many of the young wrestlers, and he's been accused of knowing full well and covering up. Um, and then there's a the possibility of Hakeem Jeffries, of five Republicans join Democrats. It could be a Democratic House Speaker. Can you comment on all of this? Well, really, the ideal would it for it be to be uh, Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, I wish there were five moderate, reasonable re Republicans, people like Brian Fitzpatrick or uh, or others, who would say that uh, let's call less around Hakeem Jeffries and actually uh, govern this country. I think it's unlikely, uh, but that would be the most reasonable outcome. If Scalise uh, gets it, I mean, on a personal level, I know him. I felt horrible during the Capitol shooting for what happened to him. I, of course, have deep sympathy and wish him well on the personal health challenges. My question for him would be, have you gotten a commitment from the eight people who just brought down Kevin McCarthy that they aren't going to try to bring you down if you're willing to govern? Or have you gotten a commitment that you don't have to shut the government down or have the country go into default? Otherwise, I don't care who they pick. It's an insolvable issue if these few far right wing Congress people basically don't want to fund the government or want to cut the government spending so drastically for people who need Social Security, Medicare, nutritional assistance. And that's really the challenge, Amy. Congressman, about those, uh, uh, the, that group of far-right Republicans, the, the leader, Matt Gates. do you, uh, as a result of this, he led the charge against McCarthy. Do you, do you sense that his influence and power within the Republican uh, caucus has increased or that he's uh, more been exposed for the extremism that he represents? 
He certainly has influence uh, in the Republican Party because he uh, has a group of folks that uh, he influences in a very narrow majority. His attack also on the Capitol, that it is being infused with lobbyist money, that it has people who've been there too long, that it isn't looking out for the ordinary Americans, is a very potent rhetorical statement. And we should be pushing for reform. My view is the way to push for reform is to ban PAC and lobbyist money, ban stock trading, make sure that uh, members of Congress can't become lobbyists. It's not to do the theatrics of removing Kevin McCarthy. But we should not underestimate the populist anger against the institution of Congress. And that's what Matt Gates is tapping into. And what about Ukraine funding? Um, the Republicans not wanting to continue to fund uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, but also talk about pushes for diplomacy, um, whether that obscures another issue, which is trying to end the war through diplomacy. The Biden administration right now is deeply concerned about what has taken place, of course, as is Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. Amy, as you know, I was one of the people on the Congressional Progressive Letter who didn't retract, saying that while we support Ukraine with aid, we need to be having conversations with Ukraine, with Russia, about what a just end to the conflict would look like. And we need to be involving people, uh, other countries like France, India, who may have a relationship to help facilitate a just end. But I have spoken even to peace activists, and they don't believe that cutting off the aid at this point would do anything but allow Putin to march into Kiev. It would be disastrous. We need to provide the aid to make sure that Ukraine can defend its sovereignty, that we aren't handing Ukraine over to Russia, that we're incentivizing Russia to come to the negotiating table, and at the same time, through another track, pursue a just diplomatic outcome. The removal of aid, regardless of where you stand on how much to push for diplomacy, would just be a colossal foreign policy blunder and basically be telling Putin, take Ukraine uh, and a, make the last year and a half an effort in vain. I also want to ask you about the California Senate race. On Tuesday, LaFonza Butler was sworn in to temporarily fill the seat of the late Dianne Feinstein, who will be buried Thursday. Butler was appointed to the Senate by California Governor Gavin Newsom, sworn in by Vice President Kamala Harris. Do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic? that you will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that you take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that you will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which you are about to enter to help you, God. I will. Congratulations. Congratulations. LaFonza Butler becomes the first openly lesbian black senator, just the third black woman to serve in the Senate in U.S. history. Former labor leader at Service Employees International Union, head of home health care workers in California. Up until this week, she was the president of EMILY's List, which helps select pro-abortion Democratic women to public office. 
Despite her union background, Butler more recently advised Uber as it fought the California law requiring app companies to grant workers employee benefits. And, of course, be, as you are, Congressman Khanna, the campaign um, co-chair of Barbara Lee's race for the Senate, um, she openly campaigned to be able to be temporarily in that seat, even as she ran for the Senate. Uh, and people felt there was a kind of ABB campaign, perhaps led by Nancy Pelosi or anyone but Barbara, um, to replace Dianne Feinstein. Your thoughts? Well, I uh, was disappointed with the governor's decision. It should have been Barbara Lee. I am enthusiastically supporting her. The Congressional Black Caucus is still behind her, and they wanted her. She was the person who was out there for one year campaigning. The governor said that uh, initially he didn't want to appoint someone like her because she was running. Now he has said it's okay to run, uh, but he still didn't pick her. And I know she uh, feels that this was not fair to, to, to her. Of course, I have tremendous respect for Senator Butler, for her life story, for what her appointment means to the LGBTQ community and to African-American women. Uh, but it is really unfortunate uh, what happened with Barbara Lee. Uh, and I think this just will fuel her to run a more spirited campaign. And I've seen so much support for her among the grassroots across the state of California. And if Senator Butler decides not to be just a caretaker, but actually throw her hat in the ring for the race, how do you think that will affect uh, the uh, uh, the race next year? Well, Senator Butler would be a formidable candidate. I mean, I know she has uh, supported and helped so many women uh, get elected. She obviously will be able to raise resources. She's a sitting United States senator, and she's a very talented person. Uh, but Barbara Lee, in my view, will still prevail. And the reason is that she has the support of progressives and her colleagues in the Congressional Black Caucus and elected officials across the state of California because of her record. She has spent decades advocating against war, advocating against a blank check for George Bush in Afghanistan when every other member gave Bush that blank check, arguing against the war in Iraq, arguing for Medicare for all and as an original co-sponsor. She has a record uh, that uh, speaks volumes for the type of country uh, we need to be. And so uh, my enthusiastic support is with her. And I know many people are genuinely empathetic to uh, what happened to her. They feel that she was not treated fairly. Um, on another note, but sticking with the Senate, though you are a Congress member, this latest news that Maryland Senator Ben Cardin, who is the new chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, to replace Bob Menendez, who was just indicted for corruption, uh, for bribery, um, with uh, some New Jersey businessmen and to support the Egyptian government. Senator Cardin has announced he's blocking all $235 million in U.S. military aid to Egypt, citing human rights concerns. Um, are you calling for Menendez overall to resign, not just step down, which he has from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and your response to Cardin's move right now? I have called for Senator Menendez to resign, as uh, has Senator Cory Booker and so many 
of my colleagues in New Jersey. I believe that would be the right thing to do, uh, given the extraordinary responsibilities of being a senator and given the serious uh, allegations uh, against him. Uh, I also have been a strong advocate for human rights in Egypt uh, and have said that we at least need to make our aid conditional on the release of political prisoners. Uh, this is something that I want to study in terms of the consequences of stopping the aid. But in terms of uh, a line saying that we have to pay more attention uh, to the human rights situation in Egypt and can't just have unconditional resources, I applaud Senator Cardin for that. Uh, and uh, we'll be working with colleagues to figure out the best path to make sure that human rights in Egypt are uplifted. And Congressman, I wanted to ask you about another uh, another crisis that's been much in the news uh, domestically here: the issue of the uh, the the surge of migrants that are that are being sent from the border uh, to the northern cities, uh, to California, to Cal to Denver, to uh, to New York, uh, to Chicago. Uh, Governor Pritzker of Illinois sent a very critical letter this week to President uh, Biden saying the federal government hasn't done enough to help the cities deal with the uh, the humanitarian assistance needed for these migrants. I'm wondering your thoughts on what the Biden administration has been doing and what it could do. Well, it's a very sad situation. First of all, we have to understand the conditions of these migrants are coming. Uh, I have heard from colleagues stories about young boys talking about their mothers being raped on the journey over to the United States. These are of often asylum seekers fleeing persecution. And America has always welcomed people who have fled persecution from other countries. It's also important to recognize that the number of undocumented in America has stayed relatively the same because a lot of people are also leaving back to Mexico and other countries who were undocumented. It stayed at around 11 to 12 million. But we know the solution in terms of comprehensive immigration reform. We know we need more immigration judges uh, at the border to make determinations about who has legitimate asylum claims. We know we need these asylum seekers once they're in the United States to be able to work. I mean, it makes no sense to have them sp spending time in the United States waiting for their formal hearings, not being uh, able to work. And we know that there is a there are comprehensive border security provisions that, that that keep the border secure and orderly while recognizing people's human rights and right to asylum. The Democrats have been proposing this for years. That is the solution that we need. And my hope is that the humanitarian crisis that the border represents uh, motivates Americans to get serious about a solution. Congressmember O'Connor, we want to thank you for being with us. Democrat of California, Silicon Valley, Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Next up, the U.N. Security Council votes to deploy a U.S.-backed, Kenyan-led multinational armed force to Haiti in the first deployment of international forces to Haiti in nearly 20 years. Back in a minute.
Haiti by Le Schlusu. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The U.N. Security Council voted Monday to deploy a U.S.-backed, Kenyan-led multinational armed force to Haiti as the island nation combats worsening gang violence. The intervention, which came at the repeated request of Haiti's unelected prime minister, Ariel Henry, marks the first deployment of international security forces to Haiti in nearly 20 years. <laughs> the proposal received... 13 votes in favor, with Russia and China abstaining. The resolution was drafted by the United States and Ecuador, allowing foreign troops to remain in Haiti for one year with a review after nine months. The Biden administration pledged at least $100 million to fund the operation. This is the U.S. Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations, Jeffrey De Laurentiis. This mission comes at the request of the Haitian government and Haitian civil society to address the insecurity and dire humanitarian crisis the country has faced for far too long. The deployment of this mission will help to support Haiti's critical near-term needs and to foster the security conditions necessary for the country to advance long-term stability. Kenya had previously offered to contribute 1,000 police officers. The Bahamas, Jamaica and Antigua and Barbuda have also vowed to send forces. Many Haitians have opposed the move due to the disastrous history of U.N., U.S. and foreign interventions in Haiti. Nearly 20 years ago, the U.S. led a coup to oust Haiti's democratically elected President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. More recently, a U.N. mission left behind an outbreak of cholera that killed some 10,000 people in Haiti. U.N. officials were also accused of widespread sexual violence, including the abuse of children. Amnesty International's voiced concerns about the intervention, and Kenyan-led armed forces recently citing Kenya's continued unlawful use of force against protesters. Meanwhile, peace activists have denounced the move as a U.S.-led invasion. In 2021, the U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti resigned to protest the Biden administration's policies in Haiti. In his resignation letter, the longtime diplomat Daniel Foote wrote, What our Haitian friends really want and need is the opportunity to chart their own course without international puppeteering and favored candidates, but with genuine support for that course. We're joined now by two guests. Monique Kleska is Haitian pro-democracy advocate, usually based in Port-au-Prince. She's joining us from Miami. She worked for many years with the U.N., including at UNICEF in Haiti for 15 years. And in Irvine, California, we're joined by Mamira Prosper. She is an assistant professor of global and international studies at the University of California, Irvine. She's also the international coordinator for community movement builders and the co-host of the podcast, Haiti, Our Revolution Continues. Mamira Prosper, let's begin with you. Can you respond to the U.N. Security Council voting to send an armed intervention force to Haiti? Yes, thank you, Amy. Um, as you said in your introduction, this is not the first time that the Security Council has voted to send 
what Haitians are calling right an occupation force into Haiti, a multinational one at that. In 2004, as you mentioned, after the coup, as you said, the U.S.-backed coup against democratically elected Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the president, the Security Council voted for the United Nations to send in troops that were led at that moment by the Brazilian army, about 5,000 troops. And you already started listing the record of this mission that took place between 2004 and 2017. So we're talking about 13 years of history here and of human rights violations. When the UN troops came in, the first thing they did was attack supporters of the president that had just experienced a coup. They followed up over the 13 years with several lynchings of different people in the population throughout the country. As you mentioned, there were too many cases of rape of women and also children, including boys and girls. And there are still feminist groups in Haiti, different social movement organizations, different members of the civil society attempting to bring these people to justice. They fathered too many children and left behind. And as we know, UN troops have immunity, so they have not been able to be brought to justice for their acts against Haitian population. As you mentioned also, um, Troops were increased in 2010 after the earthquake, and that ended up leading to a cholera outbreak. And I just want to say specifically, because troops defecated in clean water sources that Haitians were using to do a number of things, including drink and to cook with, right? So this is a complete disregard for Haitian dignity. And this led to 10,000 deaths. And today, Haiti is still fighting cholera outbreaks. And... When the U.N. troops arrived, what they did was secure certain multinational assets throughout the country rather than coming in to actually provide so-called stability. And we see that there are about, you know, $7 billion and more were spent during this time that the U.N. was in Haiti. And yet we do not see any sort of um, positive um, impact of these troops, of this mission in Haiti uh, today. And of course, the troops have since dwindled, and now we have a more political UN mission in Haiti that's supposed to organize elections. However, again, what we've seen the UN um, serve as a cover for fraudulent elections that led to the establishment of the party that is currently in power in its third iteration, as you mentioned, Amy, led by a prime minister who also is an acting president who was never voted in by the Haitian people. So the UN has really been complicit in supporting the erosion of democracy in Haiti. Today, there is no parliament. There is no, there are no checks and balances against Ayer Henri and his cabinet of ministers. And so this is some of the record of what we're seeing the UN um, mission brought to Haiti. And I will also signal the fact that during this time that they were in Haiti, um, on the ground, they were supposed to be training this police that's supposed to be able to take on the gangs. Instead, we see 500,000 illegal guns circulating in the country coming from the United States. And you mentioned before, or at least the clip that you played says that right, civil society has asked for this occupation. And I think Ms. Kliska will talk about that. But actually, they have 
if if there are factions that ask for support to the police force, the majority of people are saying what we need is the United States to control its borders and prevent illegal guns from flooding um, Haiti. And of course, we know in the United States there's a whole issue with gun control, and the and the gun producers in the end are the ones who are winning in this war against people in general, and specifically the people of Haiti. So these are some of the things that I wanted to highlight. And in 2004, when the UN mission is voted in. They have the support of the Caribbean community, CARICOM. In this case, they also still have it. We know we have Jamaica and the Bahamas um, who have also pledged to, to participate in this multinational intervention. Um, but as I said earlier, uh, what they did was essentially erode democracy in Haiti, and it was established in 2004, and this group, this council, continues to oversee and to operate on top of the state. And this is what we call the core group, and it's composed of, of course, Brazil, Spain, um, Germany, the United Nations representative, the Organization of American States representative, the United States, Canada, and France. And these folks have essentially been the ones who are pronouncing decisions over the Haitian people, over the Haitian state, have also overseen the dismantling of parliament. So I think that this is already something that Haitian people have experienced, this type of occupation. And what uh, we're Mamira, seeing right now, yes. Uh, Mamira, uh, I wanted to ask you about, about another aspect of this. We keep hearing all the narratives here in the United States about Haiti mm -hmm. and chaos and, and gang rule. And yet we, what we don't hear is the the investment that has uh, the foreign investment that has come into Haiti specifically around minerals, uh, the reports of as much as 20 billion dollars in in deposits of gold uh, and copper and especially of a rare earth metal iridium with Canadian and American companies moving in. Could you talk about that? What you know about that? Yeah, absolutely. So as I was saying earlier, when we see the UN troops coming in in 2004, and we see also that the Kenyan, the Kenyan, um, a delegation that came to Haiti recently, they said very clearly they're coming in to protect certain key assets, key infrastructures. So these missions don't really come in, in fact, to protect the population. They are there to protect multinational investments. And in the case of Haiti, we're talking about, right, um, garment industry, garment factories, we're talking about big plantations, we're talking also about mines, as you said, and all of that, right, towards exportation, not leaving anything behind for the Haitian people themselves. And we know that the particular state that's in power has already been called out for all kinds of um, uh, fraud, all kinds of money laundering, if you will. And we understand, or the Haitian people understand, that this UN mission is not, in fact, coming to combat gangs. Because, again, as I said, during the time that the UN has been there, we've seen an increase in the number of gangs, 200 gangs, including 95 that control the metropolitan area of the, cap of the capital. And really what we're seeing is that the UN bases, if you look at where they have been placed, they're usually strategically close to these multinational investments. These free trade zones in particular, 
And I'll say that it's not just multinational investments. Typically, the state, this particular state that's in power in its third iteration, has helped to subsidize some of these multinational investments, right? Instead of investing in infrastructure, instead of investing in social programs for Haitians. And so this is part of the denouncement of the Haitian people, is that they understand that this occupation is not really coming to establish order or stability or to enforce democracy, but it's to protect the certain interests that are um, allowing certain people, transnational people, Haitians included, to become richer while the rest of the population becomes poorer. And so there are records yeah, right, like of to, people already if, coming in. And, and go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I just want to bring in also Monique uh, Kleska, who yes, uh, 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 has worked as a pro-democracy advocate in Port-au-Prince and worked for the UNICEF in Haiti for 15 years. Uh, Monique, your response to the uh, to the United uh, to the Security Council decision to send in it in a, a military force into Haiti and your sense of what the impact will be on the civil society groups in Haiti. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you uh, very much for uh, inviting me. I think this validates the criminal government of Ariane Henry, because make no mistake about it, Ariane Henry is part of a criminal regime that has been in power since 2011 with Michel Martelly and then with Jovenel Moïse. He has been in power for two years. And I believe in the two years that he has been in power, he has... A really manage several a massacres. There have been more than 15 massacres. There have been gang rapes of women and of girls. All of this under his watch. And I say this, not only is he prime minister, but he is also the head of the police overboard a group. So he has double responsibilities in this sense. So this validates a criminal regime. And Madame Prosper talked about the core group, etc. I want to talk about the United States that is leading this. And the United States is pledging a hundred million dollars. Imagine if this hundred million dollars had been invested maybe two years ago to help bring about humanitarian situation, or perhaps the consensus government that the Montana Accord that I'm honored to be part of has been pushing. We have been pushing, we have been striving, we have been talking about putting together a coalition, and we have put together that coalition, and we are working so that there can be even more people part of this coalition to have a transition government that is clean, a transition government that is not criminal, a, con a transition government that is not helping the gangs. You have stories of gang members in police a cause. You have stories of gang members saying they met with Ariel Henry. You have stories of a people saying that Ariel Henry, there are phone calls that Ariel Henry had supposedly with some people who were associated with the assassination of a president. 
So we are talking about a criminal regime, but more importantly, we are talking about a governance, a criminal governance system. And we have been saying for over two years, we need a change. We need a change from a criminal governance system, from the structural system, so that we can move towards a governance system that has values, that is not into corruption, that is not into stealing, that is into human rights. So the big problem right now is the governance system. So you are with this Kenyan, a thousand Kenyan policemen, how are they going to resolve any problem of the governance system that we have? How are they, even if you bring in 15 uh, Bahamian, you bring in 150 Jamaicans, how are they going to resolve this? No, they are going to push forward. They are validating the rule of Arielari. So today we are saying that Arielari is not credible. He does not have good faith. He hasn't done anything. He asked for the troops back in October. And since then, he hasn't done anything. If we take one example, Kofufuri, the neighborhood of Kofufuri, about a month ago, people from the neighborhood went to the police station asking for help to fight off the gangs. They were tear gassed. The, the police actually tear gassed them. So then the gangs took over the neighborhood, burned houses. So you have thousands of people who left their homes. And what do the police do? After everybody vacates, after everybody leaves, then the police come and you have the police chief who has a helmet on and who has a, a mask on, etc., saying we have come to help you. Everybody was already gone. So we have a dire humanitarian situation. We have a dire situation in which women and girls are being gang raped, sometimes in front of their children. We have a dire situation of people displaced, hungry, but Ariana Lee is not the person mm -hmm. who can resolve this. And a thousand Kenyan troops who say they are learning to speak French when Creole actually is the language spoken in Haiti, more so than French, are not going to be helping. What we need, in contrast, I would like to see the same resolve from the U.S. government that they have in pushing this resolution. I would like to see them push a negotiated settlement so that Ariane can be gone out of there. And so we can have a transition government that has values, that is not into corruption, that is not in cahoots with the gang, that is not in cahoots with others who are pushing the gang members to work economic we, sector, for example. That's what we need, we just a negotiated have, settlement. We just have a minute. Mamira Prosper, I want to ask about the migrants coming into the U.S. who are deported back to Haiti, even as the U.S. says um, U.S. citizens should leave Haiti for their safety. We just have 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, we see Biden in the first month that he came in deporting more Haitians in one month than Trump had done during his entire presidency. So the Biden administration has very much been deporting Haitians hundreds um, at a time per month since, it came, since it's been established, including right sending back unaccompanied minors. At the same time, as you said, the U.S. embassy in Haiti is closed until 2025 because of security issues, kidnappings, 
massacres, etc. And um, Biden now has a parole program, which is really a sort of a cover for a workers program, right, that Haitians can come in for two years and work and they're ending up in Amazon warehouses, on farms in New England. And so you see that there is this hypocrisy in the Biden administration Prosper, towards Haiti. We're going to have to leave it there. Assistant professor at University of California, Irvine, and Monique Kleska, Haitian pro-democracy activist. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us.